To another working from home episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast coming to you from four undisclosed locations in the UK. My name is Dan Schreiber. I am sitting here with Andrew Hunter Murray, James Harkin, and Anna Chajinsky. And once again, we have gathered round the microphones with our four favorite facts from the last seven days. And in no particular order, here we go. Starting this week with my fact. My fact is sand dunes are brilliant at social distancing. Mm, okay. uh, yeah. Topical. Very topical. <laughs> so uh, they're safe. Sand dunes are inanimate objects. Mm. Okay, so I would suggest that if they're two meters apart, they will always remain two meters apart. Is that as in they're not moving, are they? They Sand dunes do move. They constantly are traveling through the desert. They are a body that falls over on itself and, and travels. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, sand dunes are constantly shifting, and that's why when deserts encroach on places, you've got these giant waves of, of sand dunes that head towards you. It's like an army. But scientists in Cambridge University have sort of simulated, they've built an experiment whereby they've been able to study the movement of sand dunes, and they've discovered that basically they do communicate with each other in, in you know, inverted commas, communicate with each other by sending signals to not encroach on their patch so they don't collide. We still fully don't understand why it is. I mean, it's pretty extraordinary. The latest theory that they've come up with is it's much like if you're in a boat and there's the wake of the boat pushing the water back behind you. It's pushing okay. the sand dune behind it to keep it at a regular distance. Although we should say, because otherwise I think people will be confused, when you say collide and it's a mystery why they don't crash into each other, obviously the main reason they don't crash, in, crash into each other is because they're moved by winds and air currents. And so you don't get yep. one moving in one direction and another moving in <laughs> the opposite direction and then galloping no. towards each other very often so when we say crashing into each other it's almost always one sneaking up on the other or you know how you know how calm one of them doesn't go a bit faster than the other and it does seem to be doesn't it that the one in front um slow effectively slows down the one behind Okay. Exactly. And and it's worth saying that there are different speeds, though, to sand dunes. So a big sand dune is much slower than a smaller sand dune. And when I say much slower, I do realise we're talking by centimetres <laughs> per year. But they do travel at different speeds. And even the smaller ones will respect uh, distance gradually as, a, as some kind of communication okay. is told. Again, it's all theories. So uh, is what you're saying like a little guy will go really, really fast until it gets a certain distance away from the big guy and then it'll go, okay, now I'm going to respect the distance and I'm just going to slow down to your pace. That- exactly. Uh, and then they okay. move at the same pace. Okay, It's not going to crop up as a plotline in the Fast and the Furious films anytime <laughs> soon, basically. The slow and the very, very placid. <laughs> they do kind of go to sleep, though, each night and wake up each morning. Again, this is a metaphor. <laughs> but <laughs> because of the, there's a big, big temperature change, obviously they're mostly in um, beachy and deserty environments, and especially in the deserty environments, it's way warmer in the day than at night. Mm. And that big temperature difference... Um, stirs the sand quite a lot. And um, at noon, the sand dune kind of wakes up and the little winds 
are generated by the temperature difference and, and the increasing temperature, and they move the surface around. And that can be another thing that moves the dunes um, so, you know, a few metres a year. So is it possible to tell the time if you're in the desert by looking at a sand dune or not? I mean, I think you'd look at the colour of the sky, possibly. <laughs> if, if it's completely dark, I think we know what time it is. That's the most amazing nomad skill you could have. That'd be really good. I was reading the other day that if you're on a mountain and you want to know how high it is, you can tell it by getting a bottle of Coca-Cola and putting some Mentos in it. You know that that trick that they often do in America yeah. where it, you kind of put your mento mint in there and then suddenly it sloshes up. Mm-hmm. If you're on a mountain yeah. and you have those two things, you can put the mento inside the Coke and the amount that it slushes up is, wow. can tell you the height of the mountain. Do you That's know so why? Cool. It's to do with the air pressure, I think. It's amazing that Edmund Hillary ever made it to the top of Everest without his Coke and his mentos. <laughs> <laughs> Do you need to have quite a big bottle, presumably? Because if is it the more it goes up, the higher you are, or is it an, is it an inverse relationship? Or well, here's the problem, Anna. I I didn't really read properly. <laughs> so if we were going to go on a hiking expedition next week, I'm going to have to do a bit more research. I guess the air is it air pressure? It's air pressure. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. it's a. Diff- Wouldn't your coke freeze at a certain height, though? Um. Would it freeze if you're on top of Mount Everest, which is the highest mountain? Maybe. Otherwise, how are they drinking? Maybe they're taking up one of those thermoses that you carried soup in on a school trip when you were young. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I can't believe you had soup in a thermos on your school trips when everyone else had sandwiches. Andy, is actually, it's actually an incredibly traumatising childhood memory. I don't want to talk about it. It was the worst <laughs> thing ever. It's incredibly embarrassing. It always spilled everywhere on the coach. No one would want to sit next to me. God, I hate my mother. (laughs) What was she thinking? This experiment, um, we didn't quite go into it then, I think, right? So Mm. uh, basically what they had was like a big Perspex circular tank um, with two walls so the sand dunes could go around the circumference of the circle, right? And they could kind of chase each other. Uh, But the guy who did it was called Carol Batchik, Uh, and he works at Cambridge University. And the reason that he did this experiment is he was just looking at one sand dune going around this thing, and he's thinking, this is boring. It's like, (laughs) it's taken ages, like, to get any kind of of data. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to double my capacity and put two sand dunes in, and then (laughs) I could get twice as much data. I'm just going to do that. And then when he did that, it started a new experiment that he hadn't intended to do but what's really interesting is it's pretty much impossible to actually make a sand dune in the lab right Mm. for years and years Mm. they said it was impossible this uh, experiment gives a kind of an idea of what a sand dune might do but of course the difference between that and an actual massive you know meters and meters high sand dune could be Mm. quite different and so in mongolia in 2007 they got a bulldozer and flattened a whole lot of the desert and they set up an experiment to see a sand dune being made from scratch Wow. But surely even the yeah. longest PhDs don't quite last long enough to genuinely watch a sand dune form from nothing and then move, do they? Or did they just sit in the desert for decades? <laughs> they just sat there for decades, yeah. They passed it on to their children, actually. Um, <laughs> wow. It's like a sourdough starter. <laughs> uh, um, well, not unfortunately. Just as it happens, uh, what they learned was exactly what everyone thought would happen according to the experiments they did in the lab. So they did all these experiments and it turned out that what happened was exactly what everyone thought was going to happen, which... That's annoying. 
is annoying in a way, but in another way, at least they've proven their theories are correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, did you know the second highest sand dune in Europe is in Wales? Is it? It's a place which is nicknamed the South Wales Sahara. <laughs> it's, a, it's 800 acres of sand, and the dunes get up to 200 feet tall, which is actually, that's, I mean, that's massive. Tall. Yeah, yeah. It's so sandy there that Lawrence of Arabia was partly filmed there. Really? As a stand-in for... Um, Arabia, yeah. The tallest one's in France, isn't it? I think I've been to it. Yeah. Is it? Yeah, have yeah, you? Yeah. The, yeah. the tallest one in Europe. Have I you slid down it? Actually, I've been to the tallest one in the world as well. Um, wow, where's that? That's in Peru, I think. Uh, and I've sandboarded on it as well. Cool. Mm. Uh, which how, is do really you do, cool. how do you go about that? Um, you pay money and they, give you, they take you on a dune buggy and they do lots yeah. of tricks over the sand dunes and then they take you to the top of one of the biggest ones and they put you on what? is less like a snowboard and more like a tea tray. And they tell you just to go to the bottom and to make sure that you took everything. Because I didn't stand up on it. I kind of like bodyboarded down it and they tell you to hide all your limbs, otherwise they'll get chopped off and stuff. It's like surfing. What what, what environment are you going through? That's what they said. They said, like, if you don't tuck your arms in, then you'll probably lose them. Wow. Anna, you'll remember tea trays because your mum probably gave you one to serve up, serve up your afternoon tea on these school trips. Actually, sand um, duning, what are you calling it? Sandboarding. Sandboarding, Sandboarding yeah. can be quite dangerous. Well, that's what they said. As, <laughs> how Not, many, how, what kind of injuries? And You lose your arms and legs, I told you. <laughs> you can obviously find that when you get to the bottom of the sand dune, then all your limbs have dropped off. But... <laughs> You can find, this is incredibly rare, they didn't know it could happen until 2013, but you can just fall into one. So, have you read this extraordinary story? No, obviously not, otherwise I wouldn't have gone sandboarding. (laughs) (laughs) Um, This happened in 2013, it's in a place called Mount Baldy, which is on the side of Lake Michigan in Indiana, and it's a huge sand dune. It's 126 feet tall, and it swallowed a boy. I, I'm just going to say wow. right now, just so everyone's not traumatised, the boy ended up okay. But mm. uh, he was running up to the top of the sand dune with his mate and his dad to then run down it or do James's trick. And suddenly he disappeared. And his dad looked around and he'd gone. And his friend said he just fell into the sand and got I mean, swallowed. You would, even if you're not Dan, you would immediately think Mongolian death worm, wouldn't you? Yeah. <laughs> so that was the conclusion they all jumped to. And they spent weeks looking into that to no avail. Um, this is amazing. Bizarrely, by chance, there was a geologist who was walking by and she saw dozens of people on the side of this sand dune just digging away in the sand saying, wow. this just swallowed a small Holy boy. Shit. We need to get right. him out. And one of the people, they heard the boy say from deep within the dune, help me, I'm scared. And this geologist was like, that is rubbish. That's totally impossible. And she just walked on went home and then even though she heard the child (laughs) she she didn't no no she didn't hear the child she just got Uh, told by the people digging she thought no that kid's just playing hide and seek anyway it turned out they saw these tiny little holes in the sand that kind of went through and it seemed that they were leading towards some massive cavity underneath it which he just dropped into and then it got immediately covered up and they excavated and excavated after three and a half hours they managed to find him hidden in a cavity in the sand dune, 12 feet underground. And he was he was unconscious and, like, really cold. Um, and he spent a couple of oh. weeks in hospital and amazingly recovered. But 
They had no idea why sand dunes shouldn't swallow anyone up. And this geologist hated herself so much for not believing it had happened at the time. She's then led this amazing study. She's called Erin Argyalan. And she's found out that it's from hollowed out trees. So the sand dunes galloped along as they do. And it's galloped over these old trees that have rotted then from the inside and been encrusted with fungus. So it's just got these tubes so it's got these weird wow. channels leading down through it, but they don't. You can't amazing. see the openings in the in the surface, so it looks like nothing. Wow, that's yeah. really cool. Don't sound bored. There's, there's another thing that they might swallow apart from six year old boys. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is there was a city built uh, in Tunisia for Star Wars, and not the original Star Wars films. I'm talking Episode One, The Phantom Menace, <laughs> the true original. Um, but in 2013, there were lots of news reports, and I haven't, annoyingly, I haven't found what happened after these reports. But it was reported that that location city built for The Phantom Menace, which was called Moss Esper in the movie, was about to be buried by a giant crescent-shaped sand dune. And this was really good news, actually. Not only because it removed evidence of the Phantom Menace from the face of the Earth. <laughs> also because it's, it was hard for scientists to measure um, sand dune movement because it's very hard to find a fixed measurement point. Because mm. it's, it's a nightmare when you're in the desert. You think, oh, well, has this moved 50 metres or has it not moved at all? We don't know because cool. there's nothing else here apart from more sand. But this was obviously very useful because it was fixed in the ground. And they could kind of look at where it is and compare it to the movie yeah. and say, okay, on this date it was in front of this part of Star Wars universe yeah. and then it was here. <laughs> but they, yeah. would, they would have to watch The Phantom Menace, though, to do that. That's true, and no scientist has been found. Yeah, that's a PhD you really don't want to do. I'd rather stand in the Mongolian desert for 20 years. <laughs> One famous thing about sand dunes is that they make this singing noise, and um, Marco Polo wrote about it in the 13th century. He said that he heard eerie sounds coming from the sand dunes around him, and that the logical conclusion was that he must be in the presence of evil spirits. Wow. Cool. But it has to be really specific sand, doesn't it? You can't yeah, just get it on any yeah. old sand dune. There aren't actually many in the world that do it, but it's got to be a very fine type of sand. And I think it's the same sort of mechanism that you get on some beaches where the sand really squeaks. And I'd never really had this before oh, and yeah. because in Britain we have beaches that I love but that are objectively quite crappy. Um, <laughs> so I'd never seen it before until I went to visit Bruny Island off the coast of Tasmania at Christmas. And there, every time you put your foot down, it sort of shrieks at you. Like it's hurt. You feel kind of bad wow. for it. <laughs> yeah, it is, it is weird creaky floorboard uh, yeah. sounds, isn't it, as you're walking along. So you can't sneak up on someone on a beach. Uh, it's actually a very good uh, mechanism yeah. to deter. That's why you moved here, isn't it, Dan? Because you just kept getting caught in Australia. <laughs> <laughs> we've been giving sound dunes very mixed messages in this country lately because we've been trying to get them to stop moving for years and building fences around them, and people sometimes cover them in oil, which is very unpleasant, which sort of like weighs them down. And we plant lots of vegetation on them, so if you go to the coast, you'll see vegetation planted. And then suddenly, conservationists have turned around and said, oh, hold on, sand dunes are supposed to move. This is like kind of nailing a horse to the floor. And so now we're trying to... Which is, and they don't do that because horses are supposed to move. And so now we're trying to get sand dunes moving again. And the National Lottery oh. has given four million pounds to get sand dunes moving again. Wow! So oh it's, they've they've set up a new app, haven't they? The Couch to Five Meters. <laughs> <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> 
Okay, it is time for fact number two, and that is James. Okay, my fact this week is that according to a recent publication, people from the north of England are more than twice as likely to be naturally funny than people from the south of England. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, sounds like a very scientific uh, publication. Who, who conducted this? Oh, I didn't write that down. Um, I can't, I've actually probably, written was it down. Na- was it I... nature or... I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was the Beano. <laughs> it was the comic the Beano. Uh, but who knows comedy better than the people who write the Beano? That's what I want to know. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so what were the details of the study? They were scant. <laughs> um, it was the analysis of famous British comedians carried out by statistician Dr. Jeff Ellis. And he looked at all the different comedians and what their particular attributes are and then he surveyed people to say how funny do you think these people are and i think thanks to the fact that peter k comes from the north of england and people like <laughs> peter k we, we came at the top uh and you guys are all not as funny yeah didn't he also say that uh gemini's are more naturally funny than leo's uh, i didn't read that bit because i'm not a gemini i only cherry picks the bits that specifically <laughs> said good things about me Ah, okay. He did, I think the study did also say yeah, that. And can I just yeah. say, as a Leo from the south of England, I'm just <laughs> honoured to be here. Uh, <laughs> um, people who were born in a city are supposed to be funnier, and you were born in London. I was. Yeah. Is that, oh, again, is that according to apparently professional statistician Jeff Ellis, who must be questioning <laughs> where his career's gone right now? <laughs> the, the Beano is pretty dry these days if they're having to resort to statistical analysis of famous comedians. <laughs> We should quickly say there'll be a lot of international listeners who might not know what the Beano is. Um, this is oh. the longest running comic in the UK, and it is um, famous for having created Dennis the Menace, the British one, not the American one. And um, the has a sort of sister publication called Dandy that has Desperate Dan. And so a lot of iconic British characters came out of this. Desperate Dan was named after you walking along the beach, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Depraved Dan was the character's original name. (laughs) Deported Dan after I was caught. Uh, We've mentioned Desperate Dan in the very olden days, so it feels right that we're correcting the balance now. I think he had to give up eating cow pie, didn't he? Because uh, yeah. of, of mad um, disease. We, but, have, yes. we all have a friend who used to work on the Beano until quite recently. Really? Uh, Matthew Hyton, a comedian, excellent comedian, I should say. Also from the north of England, very funny guy. <laughs> uh, he used to work for the Beano. Yeah, that's right. And he's still part of the Beano WhatsApp group where wow. everyone sends each other messages about the Beano. Uh, and I asked him if they had any facts. And so do you want to hear some facts from the oh, Beano yeah. WhatsApp group? So the Beano um, offices in London are on Fleet Street and it is where people believe that Sweeney Todd was supposedly uh, had his barbershop. And so they get loads of tours of people who want to see the kind of dodgy, murdery parts of London always wow. go to the Beano offices and have a look around. Not They don't go into the offices. They go into like the alleys next to the office because that's, that's where Sweeney Todd supposedly cool. One of the biggest his... pranksters of all time, Sweeney Todd. <laughs> Yeah. Well, he didn't have cow pies, but he did have people pies, didn't he? I guess. Yeah. 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 Probably the inspiration for Desperate Dan. (laughs) Who knows? Um, I found out in my Beano research, uh, niche fact that definitely international listeners won't care about, which is the breed of dog that Nasha is. 
Oh, because okay. if you look at Nasha, he's just sort of like a big frizzy lump of black uh, mm. with some legs sticking out. And he's actually a very rare breed. Uh, he's an Abyssinian wire-headed tripe pound. And he's okay. a very rare breed of dog from the mountains of Eastern Africa, according to the Beano website. They're world oh. famous for their thick black coats, which are as strong and tangled as barbed wire. Which is weird, because barbed wire, actually, when it's erected, is not tangled at all. But they're also famous the for their strong... Are- yeah. I suppose bit, bits of it are. You're right, the barb yeah. bits are, aren't they? <laughs> Sorry, Anna, are, are, you, are you just being silly? Is, this isn't a real kind of dog, is it? Yeah, of course it is. They're also famous for their strong <laughs> teeth that can chew through concrete and smash bricks. <laughs> did, you know, uh, did you know that Nasha can speak real people words, but only on Halloween? Ooh. Again, that, well, this breed of dog is particularly famous for that. <laughs> they are extremely rare now. Um, <laughs> the, the American Dennis and Menace, we've mentioned before, mm. the beautiful coincidence that they both appeared at the same time, these two characters with the same name, and uh, both wear red and black costume. And um, American Dennis the Menace, I was looking into how he came about, his origin story, and he was actually inspired by, um, and this is the story that's told, in 1950 when the artist Ketchum was drawing his wife uh, came in to interrupt him to say that their own four-year-old son, Dennis, had just demolished their bedroom by putting fecal matter that he'd found in his (laughs) underpants all over the room and um, declared him a menace. And so he thought, ooh, that sounds like a good character name. So he went, helped to clean up the shit off the walls and then uh, created Dennis the Menace. Because there was a song uh, a few (laughs) years before both of these characters came along that was quite popular called Dennis the Menace from Venice. And most people think that the reason that they came at the same time is because they were both inspired by this song, which had become quite popular. But the poo on the wall story is quite persuasive. Um, The poo on the wall story also features in the music hall song, doesn't it? So (laughs) I think it might have taken the same trajectory. Um, Yeah, I think the the creators of the British version of Dennis said that he was inspired by that music hall song. And actually, I looked up the lyrics to this song, although I can't find the melody and I really want it. Um, Dennis the Menace from Venice is a gay gondolier with gold rings in his ears and he's a massive player. So the whole song is about how he's this gondolier who seduces other men's wives down the canals of Venice. At nine in the evening, he dines with a blonde. At ten, he has got a brunette. At midnight, you'll find him with some ginger gal and he teaches them all how to pet. Wow, it sounds a bit like Mambo number five, doesn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Another song which which originally ended up with the protagonist smearing his poo all over the walls. Mambo number two, they had to rename it, didn't they? There was, it's obviously a lot of the humour in the Beano is really lavatorial. And there was a plan in 2017 to do a Beano takeover at the Victoria and Albert Museum uh, in London. And what they wanted to do was amend the... They've got a cast of Michelangelo's David there, and they wanted to tweak it so that it would fart as people passed by. And I can't find any evidence that it happened because there was Mm. fury in the museum that there was going to be... It was actually genuinely irritating to people. And one there was a memo doing the rounds about the plans. And somebody replied, an insider from the museum said, frankly, some of the things in the memo are disgusting. While it's important to encourage children to visit, farting statues are not the way to do it. <laughs> wow. Come on. Um, so Beano launched in 1938. Mm. And there's not many copies left of the original issue. Um 
But by weird coincidence, I saw one the other day. A oh. friend of mine, yeah, called Ollie Driscoll. He's a cameraman for, uh, he works on movies like the latest Jurassic Park movies and Touching the Void and the Fast and Furious movies. Back in 1999, he bought the Beano first issue for £6,000. Wow. Um, and as far as he knows, it's the only issue that has the toy that it came with, the free toy, which was a uh. mask. Oh, um, my God. He has, yeah. you know the guy who has that. Yeah, he has it. He showed it to me. Yeah, and um, he has it in mint condition, and he's up for selling it. So if anyone wants to buy (laughs) a very expensive comic book magazine, uh, he's got it for sale. Uh, Dan, I'm really interested because I I read a bit about that thing, and it said that it came. It said the toy that it came with. It called it a whoopee mask. Yeah, yeah. And I obviously only know the whoopee cushion, but presumably this is not a mask where. Someone has to sit on your face and it makes a noise. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I think it, I think maybe Whoopi, is it possible Whoopi had a different uh, meaning to it back I then? I think it didn't fart. I've seen a picture and I can't see where they would have got the farting mechanism into it. So <laughs> it's very I think flat. It's just glasses. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Do you know what the oldest comic strip in the world is about? No. This is what's established recently as the oldest sort of Western comic book. And by comic book, it's like something that's mass produced and it has speech bubbles and mm. released every week or every couple of weeks. It's called Looking Glass and it ran for three editions. And it was the oh. adventures of a coat being worn by different people. Is it about that? There's that a Google story about the coats, isn't there? It, the overcoat like, or the great coat. Yeah, the overcoat. The overcoat it was yeah. not um, based on Google, a Google story. It was pre that. It was <laughs> okay. 1825. Wow, maybe Gogol based his story on the comic. <laughs> on the history of a coat. Wow. I just can't imagine two people had the same idea about doing a story about an overcoat. You're right. Well, we don't know this one was an overcoat. It might have been an undercoat. Uh, it was just a okay. coat. What's an un- <laughs> what is an undercoat? I don't know. It's just something I made up that would be the opposite of an overcoat. Anyway, it, was, it had characters like Billy the Bully and Ranting Dan. And this was, you know, 200 years ago. It Dan, was- you're getting an absolute pasting in this. <laughs> Okay, it is time for fact number three, and that is Anna. My fact this week is that in 1943, German troops who were rescuing Mussolini had to seize control of a tourist funicular railway so they could ride a cable car to the top of the hill and pick him up. So cool. What an awkward journey in that funicular railway cable car it must have been with the two elderly tourists and the 20 (laughs) Nazi (laughs) goons who refused to budge and get out of it. (laughs) No, we paid for our ride and we will damn well take it. So what what was he doing at the top of the hill? That's a good question. Uh, he was just <laughs> hanging out there. So I didn't know this had happened. But when Mussolini was deposed by his own people because they finally realised that he was shit in every way in 1943, um, he was arrested by his own council and they sort of took him prisoner and they moved him around to a lot of different places. And then eventually they plopped him at the top of the Gran Sasso d'Italia, which has a lot of very high mountains in oh, the right. Apennines. And it's only reachable by cable car. And Hitler, who's a fan of Mussolini, heard about this, sussed out where he was, and ordered this rescue operation. And so in order to rescue, the plan was send some troops there and pick him up. And so, yeah, they had to seize this cable car. And it just... Because they go quite slowly, cable cars, at the best of times. And I reckon in 1943, very slowly. Just imagine the rush and well, the frenzy. Yeah, which is... It's a, so it's a funicular um, cable car, which is where they have the two counterbalances. So they'll have two cable cars, won't they? One on one side and one on the other. Yeah. But it was a crazy operation, this Mussolini rescue. It was part cable car-based and mostly glider-based. 
And so the plan was for these 10 tiny little glider planes to land on the top of this mountain, which they'd sort of done some reconnaissance on and thought they'd seen a big meadow they could land on, which turned out to be a massive rocky field. So they all crash landed. Uh, Some of them were quite badly injured. Uh, ran in to pick up Mussolini. And one of the SS commandos apparently vomited inside his glider, which made it very unpleasant to travel in for the rest of them. Um, They were so flimsy, these tiny little gliders, and the pilots were so nervous about it uh, because of that, that one of the pilots in one, he couldn't see out the window because it was really blurry. So he got a knife out and he just jammed a hole in the fuselage so he could look out (laughs) and then pushed a bit of the fuselage out so he could look out of the plane. Wow. And then they picked him up. They sort of and they sort of gave him up quite uh, sort of okay, take him. That's fine. Like no bullets were fired. Mm. It was uh, and and Mussolini requested that as well. He said, "Please, no one, no one shoots." And yeah, it was quite a peaceful operation. And they didn't get him out by the funicular, did they? He, he no. They were pl- there was an idea to get him out by a funicular, so they were planning to land a plane at the bottom of the funicular that mm. he could just board. But the plane crash landed and lost a wheel on landing, so instead they got him out by a small light aircraft from the top of the mountain, didn't they? Got it. Okay. Which also sounds crazy. And your wife's a pilot, so maybe she could say how unstable this is. But they were terrified Mm. about leaving because it was a really light aircraft and Mm. it was overcrowded to the extent that Mussolini, who was six foot four, massive guy, sat in the passenger seat. And then the guy who was in charge of the operation, Captain Scorzeni, was wedged in the luggage compartment behind (laughs) and underneath the seat. Mm. And way too heavy. So it like careered down this hill, bumped down this hill, which wasn't the kind of surface they wanted. And then did a nosedive off the edge of a precipice and they only survived because the pilot realised that he'd have to leave it in freefall for a while so they in order to get up the requisite speed you could then pull the plane up and start flying it away Mussolini was um, bad dude I think we can all agree he was also a British spy for some time Mm. yeah he was hired by the British in 1917 and he was given a wage by MI5 to help uh, keep Italy fighting in the war because in the First World War, they were on the same side as the British. Mm. And that was about £6,000 a week. So, you know, he owes a lot of his early success to MI5. That's a huge amount of money. Yeah, is it modern yeah. day that much, or was that that much at the time? Modern okay. day that much. It wasn't. Yeah, it was oh. £100 a weekly wage at the time, mm. which is about £6,000 now. Okay. Enough to buy a second-hand car... Or, well, you, you know what £6,000 is. You don't need to eat it. Well, you can buy the first edition of the Beano for that back in 1999. <laughs> <laughs> Terrible news. Italy has dropped out of the war, but I did secure this. Check out my whoopee mask, guys. <laughs> I think we've briefly mentioned before that his son, Romano, was a jazz musician. Yeah. Yes, and a famous jazz musician more or less in his own right I just wanted to add on I found uh, a memorial article about him in the Atlantic and the headline was he made the refrains run on time ah nice Um, funiculars yeah Yeah. oh great (laughs) I made a list of all the funiculars I've been on as part of my research how many and I've been on only six it's not enough but one of them was closed when I visited it, so it would have been seven. So can you can you just quickly re-explain for maybe some of the audience listening to this show who might not <laughs> understand what a funicular is, what it is? Sorry to yes. sorry to do that. We obviously all know. So it's a little it's a little railway, uh, which is it's they're normally they're designed to go up and down very very steep hills. Uh-huh. So if you've got you know a, it's a very steep mountainside, it's a great way of getting up and down there with not too much um, 
you know, without going round and round the houses. So it's a direct line. Uh, and usually one car is ascending while the other is descending. So there are two. And sometimes there's just one line and the cars are going towards each other and they're about to hit each other. And then just at the very middle of the line, the line branches off into two and they go around mm. each other and then use the same line again. That's a very efficient way of doing it. And the reason they're really useful is because you're using the weight of one of your trains to pull the other one up. So as one yeah. is oh, descending, wow. it's yeah. pulling the other one up. So you need a lot less energy. Yeah. Um, that's the that's the crucial thing about them is the counterbalancing, and they still use a little motor, so they still need to be able to pull themselves yeah, up the yeah. hill. But the, it's so much counterbalancing. Yeah, so you're using basically the potential energy of one to pull up the other one. Um, but like Anna says, you do need some. It's not Extra. a completely perfect um, system of um, not perpetual, not perpetual motion. motion, so you do no. need uh, <laughs> as close yeah. as we've got. Yeah, you need a little leg up. Yeah. Apparently, sometimes uh, you can make them move just by having enough people in the cabin. If you crush enough slightly overweight people in, it can just weigh its way down. Mm. So that's an insulting moment when you step into a funicular <laughs> and finally they're like, thank God we've got them. Okay. <laughs> it's like I was once in uh, television studios in London and um, there was a lot of people in the lift uh, and I needed to get in the, in the lift as well. And I got in and as soon as I walked in, it started beeping and said, sorry, um, too much weight in this lift. <laughs> so I had to walk out and get the stairs while everyone else oh, got God. the lift. Yeah, that's awkward. That's very unfair, but it's just because you were the last one in. It's only really insulting if you get in and the guy who's running the lift says, all right, well, you six people are going to have to leave, I'm afraid. Um, I was once on an aeroplane. I don't know if I've said this before, but I got an aeroplane in, I think it was in Hawaii or somewhere. It was somewhere where it's a small aeroplane and um, they made me move to counterbalance the weight of the plane. And they said, excuse me, sir, can can you sit over the wings? I'm not a particular overweight man you know it's like you're not was, at all Andy I want to know the last time you went into a lift that there was a man running it when... all, all the lifts I only go into a lift which has an operative uh, <laughs> um, yeah it would have been longer ago than the last time I was in a funicular which was in Hastings last you year you know when you said you've been in six funiculars does that include going yeah. up and going down as separate ones oh okay if we're doing that I've been in 12 funiculars <laughs> 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 but they are I mean they're, I find them kind of weirdly lovely again I'm a bit of a funicular obsessive not that much of one because I've only been in 12 uh, slash 6 but funicular and moss they're your two loves aren't they Andy pretty sad isn't yeah. it if you imagine a, a funicular overgrown with moss and that would be my dream <laughs> <laughs> But I just, they are very cool. Um, and I, I find them quite weird because obviously they're only usual in very hilly or mountainous places. And so you get loads of them in seaside mm. resorts. Like Scarborough has five? Really? Okay. Wow. Yeah. Uh, or it has had five at, at various different points. Hastings has two. Um, um, do you guys know the song about funiculars? The really, no. fa- really famous no. one. Funiculi Funicular um, from the 1880s. Um, do very you know cool. it? Like, no, it's like, you would you would know it if you heard it. You would know it for sure. Um, it's like a really famous Italian song that like goes da 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 da
compositions. And then the guy who actually wrote it, who was living in Italy, heard this and he was like, that's my song. What's going on? And so he sued Richard Strauss um, for the money for his song and he won as well. Wow. So it's, oh, and wow. as far as I can see, he's like one of the oldest examples of someone suing for someone stealing their songs. Wow. Cool. Isn't that cool? That's amazing. amazing. Yeah. Do you know, Ireland has one cable car. Just okay. one. It's just got one, <laughs> one cable car. It takes people from Cork to Dursey Island, which is just off the coast of Cork. And it's the only way of getting to the island. And uh, there was outcry a few years ago when it was announced that no longer was the cable car allowed to be used to transport cows. <laughs> um, this, is, this is actually a serious problem because a lot of the Dursey Island industry, which admittedly is quite small, I think it only now has two permanent residents. A lot of the industry <laughs> is quite cow-based, quite cattle-based, and the cable car is tiny. It can fit one cow. Um, so when they were moving cows over, moving. Um, the farmers you did, when they were moving the cows across, the farmers would have to put them one at a time in this one cable car. No there are great way. pictures of them disembarking. Wow. And then would they have to like sometimes put the cow across but then send some corn back and then put a chicken back in and send that yeah. back is that what yeah <laughs> there were so many awkward trial runs where the chicken was dead the cow was dead and they could only plant corn that's so amazing just one really cool. surely you could squeeze in you could go and lie on top of the cow man it's pretty small you could maybe <laughs> squeeze in an italian fascist but that's <laughs> Uh, I've wow. got a new favourite cable car as a result oh, yeah. of researching this fact. Um, mm-hmm. It's a cable car. That I want to takes... know what your old favourite cable car was. But we'll come <laughs> on to that. My, well, my old favourite one was the one I got in Hong Kong, which took you across mountain ranges to go to Ocean Park, which we used to get uh, most of my childhood. Astonishing cable car. Um, but Brilliant. that's been superseded by uh, a mountain cable car in South Germany, which takes you to the top of a mountain called the Wank. And I've been there. I've been to you've the been wank. to the wank. I, I mean, you've of been... course, of course, right, I guys. have. <laughs> so you've of been on course. the wank barn. I have been. I have watched ski jumping at the wank uh, mountain, and I've watched Andreas Wank, the ski jumper, jumping at the wank, <laughs> wank mountain. <laughs> I think it's amazing. right. It's next to Garmisch Partenkirchen. I think. Yes, that's correct. So, yeah, so to get to the top of it, if you want to take the quick way, uh, you um, get the wank barn, and the wank barn leads you to the top, and there's a wank house at the top as well. (laughs) Can I I just say, Dan, the wank barn sounds like the disgusting sequel to the song Love Shack. (laughs) (laughs) It's a little-known place where you can get together with yourself. Yeah, so yeah, and also if you go regularly, you can get a wank pass, which gets you um, a sort of year round permit to get the cable car. Mm. Oh, wow. Uh, it's a pretty rough place to clean, isn't it? Those poor cleaning stuff. <laughs> Coincidentally, I'm banned from all six of the funiculars I've been on, <laughs> but not the other six. <laughs> oh, God. Okay, it's time for our final fact of the show, and that is Andy. My fact is that in medieval Germany, bad musicians were tied to an instrument called the flute of shame. (laughs) That doesn't sound like much of a... I mean, was it a massive flute or...? It was was a flute. I think everyone knew it was the flute of shame. As always, that's where the shame comes from. Um, So it's called the Schandflut, uh, or Schandflute, and... 
so this is a it's it was a metal device with a collar at the neck, so it was clamped onto you, and um, your fingers would supposedly be clamped to the keys. Not really a flute, more of a clarinet. Um, mm. I've written I've written flarinet in my notes, which mm. I like, um, but that's just a mistake. Um, so there are a couple of these things only in existence. Um, one of them is in the medieval crime museum in Rothenburg, and another is in the Amsterdam torture museum. And so there's a I couldn't quite work out if these things you know were real or if they were Victorian reproductions. Mm. But I did find a paper in uh, the journal Torture. Uh, which is all about other <laughs> it's about other shaming instruments and there were definitely things like uh the neck violin which uh could be attached to you and you might be put in the in a pillory you know you might be tied up somewhere with uh this wooden violin again attached to your neck by a kind of iron band i saw a picture of that it doesn't to me it didn't look like a violin at all i think they just called it that cuz it goes yeah. on your neck didn't they Exactly. Oh, the, there and are your some hands which, get locked well, the, in. There are some which definitely look like violins. Oh, okay. Because uh, okay. a There's... flute one does look like a flute. That's why it confused yes. me. Or clarinet, yeah, yeah. you know. Or clarinet. Yeah, yeah. Or clarinet. <laughs> you know, it's one of those. Do you have to play it while you're in it? I, do, I mean, accounts vary. Some people say you'd be sort of put on and walked around a bit and you'd have to, you know, go, yeah, I am a crap musician. But <laughs> Oh, it is the perfect instrument for feeling sorry for yourself as well, the violin. So that's quite a nice... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, I asked Greg Jenner about this, whether he thought this was a real Ooh. thing or not. And he asked um, Dr. Eleanor Janega, who is at Going Medieval on um, on Twitter, who's a medieval historian. And she isn't sure. She thinks that it might be one of those inventions that were, as she puts it, retrofitted, as in mm. uh, it's like a Victorian, mm. more of a Victorian idea. Uh, on the German Wikipedia, it says... In recent times, the Schandflut is often presented as a punishment for bad musicians, but like the neck violin, which also resembles a musical instrument, it served to punish various minor violations of the legal system. So not for musicians, but just a more general kind of punishment like the stocks kind of thing. So mm. I guess we just don't really know, do we? It's kind yeah. of... Yeah. So the, the violin definitely seems to be a thing. Um, but not necessarily for musicians, perhaps. No, no, no. It seems to make more sense that they'd be used to punish an actual crime. But, but they did used to make punishments fitting with the crime. So maybe if you'd stolen a violin or beaten up a violinist. <laughs> or, you know, it's uh, waiting for a long time if you make a massive metal flute for someone to steal a flute, isn't it? It's like, <laughs> surely it'll happen eventually. What did they steal? Oh, they stole some bread. Okay, have we got a massive bit of metal? <laughs> Still waiting um, on the flute. Not only did they have the uh, the neck violin, um, but I saw as well that in one of these museums, uh, the Crime Museum in Rotterdam, that they've got a double neck violin. Mm. Uh, and the idea of the double neck violin was, um, according to the little caption that goes with the uh, with the item, is that it was for arguing couples, and they would have to walk around with them on, sometimes with bells attached, uh, ringing. And the idea was that they would walk in shame until they resolved their argument. So it was just a quick way of making them actually talk to each other uh, and shaming themselves into a, an understanding of their points. And wh uh -huh. why is there a violin hanging between them? It just seems like the totally irrelevant part of that setup. <laughs> well, it's romantic. Just... Oh, so when they make up, they can do a little serenade. Yeah, exactly. It's like when someone comes to your table uh, while you're having dinner and plays a song for you. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> um, so, just on flutes, is it flutist or flautist? Flautist. Okay, one one vote for flautist. It seems to be that in America it's flutist, although one of huh. the greatest ever players, Julius Baker, he has said it should be flutician. 
Mm. Like a beautician. Sounds like someone who cures a flute. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've always said flautist. I thought that was the. I think it is the standard oh. in the UK, definitely. Uh, yeah. uh, Me too. I think that's because we're British. Dan? Yeah, I'm not a good one to ask. I only just found out through James that I've been saying pianist wrong this whole time. That it's a pianist. <laughs> okay. But flutes are four times as old as farming. Are they? Okay. Yeah. People were just eating flutes for the first 30,000 years, weren't they? <laughs> they found these um, bones with holes in, didn't they? And the holes yeah. are the correct distance apart to make you think that they must be a flute. Um yeah. Mm. I'm a little bit unconvinced by it, I must say, but that is like, yeah, that's it's, some... well, so. There's one which I think they are more convinced by, mm. which is for thirty-five thousand years old, and there's one which is a bit of a borderline case, and that's the one I'm basing it on, which is forty-three thousand years old. Yeah. Um, it mm. could be unbelievably good luck that there are these holes in it, or it could be there are a lot of there are a lot of bones. With holes some of them in... must have holes in it, the right <laughs> spaces. Um, and it's the but the forty three thousand year old one is the leg bone of a cave bear, which is an incredibly epic wow. uh, thing to make. I know. Imagine the combination of skills that you need to be a flute player in forty three thousand years ago. You need to be able to kill a bear, but also to have the finesse. Yeah, to play. <laughs> that is incredible. I think we can safely say that the coolest guy in an orchestra or girl. Um, which is not a difficult thing to be, I know, but is definitely the person who's playing the bear's limb. Right? <laughs> uh, in 1969, there was an Australian park ranger and he, he-, he heard the sound of a flute playing in the park and it turned out that it was a bird called the lyrebird and the lyrebird can copy people's uh, noises and you know you sometimes see them on like uh, nature documentaries where they're making the sound of drills or something like Mm. that or mobile phones because they've copied them so he heard this bird that was singing a tune that sounded just like a flute and he did some research and he found that 30 years earlier there was a flute player who'd lived near the park with a pet lyrebird and he used to play the flute to this bird and then he let the bird go free into the forest and what he surmises is that that bird then taught the song to all the other lyre birds and so what we're hearing now in the or in 1969 in the forest was like a recording of a 1930s song that that guy had played on his flute Oh. And it was that song about the um, Dennis the Menace from Venice, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. We should make full orchestras yeah. out of birds to save us having to carve all these instruments out of bear limbs. We could just train up lyrebirds yeah. to play everything. Or like Beyonce should release her next album purely on birds. On a, on a bird. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, just one thing going back to medieval punishment very uh-huh. quickly. Mm-hmm. In medieval Ireland, um, the punishment for masturbation was penance of 120 days so you had to do your hail marys and our fathers and stuff for 120 days and for a priest it was a penance of a full year every time you masturbated you had to do that Uh, and that is according to the penitential of cominianus uh, which is pardon stop the penitential of cominianus um, there was a guy called Comenianus, uh, and he wrote the, these rules about. <laughs> wow! So I'm getting I'm getting a bit of uh, interference. What was he called, James? Sorry. <laughs> he was called. <laughs> he was also sometimes called just Comian. If you just, didn't, if you just didn't call me Fred, guys, just call me Fred. <laughs> <laughs> he, um, if you wanted to Latinize his name, it was Comenianus. Wow! I bet he didn't want to Latinize his name very much. <laughs> 
Okay, that is it. That is all of our facts. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to get in contact with any of us about the things that we have said over the course of this podcast, we can be found on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at Schreiberland. James. At James Harkin. Andy. At Andrew Hunter M. And Anna. You can email podcast at qi.com. Yep, or you can go to our group account, which is at no such thing, or our website, no such thing as a fish.com. We have everything up there from all of our previous episodes to uh, links to merchandise. So uh, thanks for joining us this week. As ever, we hope you and your family members are still doing well and you're all safe in these crazy, crazy times. And we uh, thank you for continuing to listen to us as well during this pandemic. Uh, we'll be back again next week with another episode. So we'll see you then. Goodbye. <laughs>